There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Napalm smells best In the evening it's not Worth believing what you heard Oh man, I shot Marvin in the face, says John Travolta in Pulp Fiction after he accidentally obliterates the head off of my guest today. Hi, I'm Matt Gorley, and this is I Was There Too, the podcast where people who were present in the great scenes of cinema history tell us how it all went down. Today, Phil Lamar joins me. He's Marvin, the poor headshot victim that ends up just atomized throughout the entire interior of Samuel L. Jackson's 74 Chevy Nova. But today's actually my second episode about Pulp Fiction, only the first never came out because the guest showed up to the studio and was just having a horrible day. They didn't seem to want to talk about their very iconic role in this film anymore, and I think I can understand that. But that's why it was so great to have Phil in to talk with me. He had so many great things to say about his role in Pulp Fiction and just the film in general. You'd know his face from Mad TV and his voice from Futurama and much, much more. Part of what I loved about this discussion is that we tackle a couple of the myths about Pulp Fiction, one about its production and one about its intentions, and I'll say it, I think we pretty soundly lay them to rest. So let's just get started. Stick around after the interview for an old familiar segment. Here we go. The film, Pulp Fiction, the year, 1994, the role, Marvin, the actor, Phil Lamar. Phil Lamar. Is it true that your character of Marvin in Pulp Fiction was originally supposed to be shot in the throat and survive for a while before Vincent and Jules would be forced to put him out of his misery, but that maybe you thought this might make their characters look too unlikable, so you took the idea of a single bullet kill to Tarantino and he agreed to do it, figuring it might be funnier or something? That is... The first part of that is true. You, are you <clears> saying <throat> that I might not be able to trust the internet movie database? <laughs> it was not my idea oh, to change it. Okay. It was John Travolta's idea. Um, but yes, in the original script, and this is like one of three things that changed. No, actually, maybe well, only two I can name. Um, I'm assuming there's one other that I don't know about. Two things sure. that changed from the original script that was handed to us to what we shot. Um, one is that. Marvin was originally supposed to die uh, from a second gunshot to the head. Um, and in fact, I, after I got cast, I called a buddy of mine from college who's a neurosurgeon and who was working at County USC and was like, dude, you see a lot of bullet wounds. If I got shot in the throat, like what sort of sounds, what would be going on? It's like, you wouldn't be really making any sounds. You'd be shot in the throat and dying slowly, um, but it would really hurt. Um, oh, God. And so I like prepared myself for this. Um, but I remember when we got together for rehearsal, it was John Travolta, Sam Jackson, uh, Quentin Tarantino, um, the first AD, Sam uh, Malone or Malley, um, and me at Sony Studios. Um, I the first thing Travolta said when I walked in was, Oh, man, I got to kill him. They're going to hate me. 
And I thought he was just like <laughs> joking. It was like, oh, <laughs> nice to meet you too. Um, but then once we got to set, the script had changed. And so it's almost as if literally seeing you walk in the room and you cut a sympathetic figure, he's thinking this, this can't quite go this way. And, I, and what I figured out, I mean, it was actually really interesting to have somebody. Because at that point, John Travolta was like – like three deep in talking baby movies. Right. You're not kidding. We had sort of forgotten yeah. how famous he was. And he's not famous by accident. He's got a sense of his persona, how he interacts with an audience. And he knew that accidentally killing a poor little innocent kid in the back of the seat back seat of a car is one thing. Choosing to do it is another. And I think he was right in saying that that would affect the whole rest of the movie and how his character would be taken in by the audience. I mean, it it was weird because, like, at that age, you know, I'd worked a bit, but I didn't have that kind of a sense of an audience. You know, you know like some actors have a camera sense and they know what their good side is. Mm-hmm. He has that, like, on a persona level, you know, and yeah. he got it. And Quentin, like, knew he was right. Interesting. Wow. How much rehearsal did you have for this film? Because even that is a rare luxury for a film, right? Yeah. Well, it was because it was so low budget. It had an $8 million budget. And it went on to become the, the biggest grossing independent film of its time. I think it maybe it's been surpassed. But I'm $200 sure. million, I think it took. Yeah. Initially. Yeah. I, it's, <laughs> That's a rate of return. It's funny because I keep uh, – I still have in my files the centerfold from the uh, from Variety the week it cleared $100 million. Oh, wow. Because I literally stood on set one day saying, well, I mean, they could try to sell it like a big summer action movie. Bruce Willis, Uma Thurman, John Travolta, you know, right up until the heroin overdose and the anal rape. <laughs> you know, basically saying, like, come on, guys, we know this isn't going to make any money. It's going to make like five million more than Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, that was one of the questions I have for you is, so up to this point, we, I mean, today, Tarantino's, we know everything about his film and his style, but we only had... Reservoir Dogs to go off of, which was a huge cult hit. Right. But even that was a slow burn. Yeah. It was a bit of a sleeper. So going in, did you, how much of an awareness of this did you have? Was was there nerves or were you kind of relaxed because you're like, eh, this is, will be what it is? Or The only thing that everyone knew is that it was great. I mean, it was a script you pick up and you go, oh my God. <laughs> you know, I, I before I auditioned, I remember, like, reading through it to try to, you know, get my lines, you know, sort of in my head, but I was going to hold the script. By the third time reading through it, I was memorized. Just because it flew so yes. nicely. Wow. Yeah. It's like, it's not, it wasn't like memorizing. It was like, well, what would you say if someone, you know, it's like, well, you'd say what? Yeah. He says, say what again? I mean, it just all. <laughs> well, some cues are built in there, too. That's... Yeah, but it all just, the, the whole script just jumps off the page into your brain. Mm-hmm. And the characters, you know, feel, feel fleshed out automatically. I mean, as an actor, you feel like you could play any of these parts. Because they had me audition doing the Jules lines in the hamburger scene. Oh. And I'm reading that, and it felt so good. I'm like, I mean, I could be up for it. Yeah, Maybe, the... I mean, I'm a little short, but I, I think I could play that. You know? <laughs> Well, yeah, what do you think that was? Were they looking at you for Jules's role? Or? No. So that character No, but Mar- so... Marvin has five lines. I know. You can't tell it's... if anybody can act I from five so. lines. I know, but it seems so polar opposite in terms of character that you – did he have you do anything that was closer to Marvin or he just saw you do something Jules? No, because, I mean, the thing is, if somebody can pull off the Jules part – I guess, yeah. They can probably do the Marvin part. That's a good point, yeah. You know, what was your uh, audition process like? How did you come to get it? Did you work with him in the Groundlings, as I know some people did with Tarantino? Yes, um, I met him because Julia Sweeney invited him to do the Cooking with Gas improv show, right. and he was our celebrity guest. And I was just part of the cast, and we had a really fun time. He was really good. And then I found out later um, when he was casting, Ronnie Yeskel was the casting director, and I had worked with her you know, a couple of years before. And she was recommending me for the parts. Like, Phil Lamar would be really good for this part. You should see him. And Quinn's like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. But there's this black guy at the Groundlings <laughs> that he, he's somebody we should really see. Um, and I don't, I don't know if I was, I was only competing with myself. That's All I know a is dream it took, story. Seriously. But it took three months after I auditioned to hear anything. Wow. And I was doing mostly TV. And in TV, if you don't hear in a week, yeah. it's dead. It's already on the air. 
Right. <laughs> um, so I thought, okay, well, it's just gone until they called and said, okay, well, rehearsal's going to be here. It was just like that. You didn't have to go back in a second time or anything. No, wow. no. Because I auditioned, like, there was a lot less putting on tape in 90, what was this, 93? Yeah. yeah. Um, it was Quentin and Ronnie in the room. And I read with Quentin, you know, and we did the scene. Um, I think we did it a couple of times. And, um, yeah, so we had – I had one day of rehearsal. Um, but I know that – I think they had like a three-week rehearsal period before shooting started just for maximum efficiency. Mm-hmm. You know, they uh, – I remember they had sort of like laid out stuff in the, this sound stage, And when I came in, uh, John Travolta and Sam Jackson were practicing the uh, foot massage walk. Oh, yeah. Um, which – Weirdly enough, was shot here, the building behind here. That big building that is under construction was at the time in 93, 94, a um, Spanish-style apartment complex. Ah. And we shot um, them reaching into the uh, trunk for their weapons – um, and the walk through the hallway. It was even at the time it was already condemned. Uh-huh. Like there was nobody in it. But I guess I guess it was condemned for residency. But you know you could sh- you could bring like dollies and you know, it's like okay, well if you guys fall, you're paying for it. <laughs> Massive you're not going to sue us. Weight and infrastructure. Sure, right. bring it in. Exactly for days. But eventually somebody just like knocked it down. Many of the locations are obviously still. Out there, in fact, researching this film, I had no idea a lot of this was shot in Atwater Village, where I live. Really? So, yeah, Lance and um, what's what's his wife's name? Uh, oh, Eric uh, Stoltz and and, and uh, Rosanna Arquette. Yeah, their house is like four blocks away in Atwater Village, where, where he drives the yes. car up into. The, yeah, really. And the um, I believe the there's some city street scene where they shot it in Atwater Village, as well as some of Reservoir Dogs as well. So I don't know if Tarantino oh. has some kind of tie to that or what but god who was the i'm trying to remember the name of the um location guy i can't remember but um, i have a picture of him um no i i remember uh, driving off of los Feliz down to riverside and seeing that the the place where bruce willis pulls out yeah the hotel and the bridge there yes that's and that hotel's gone now because i live very close to there as well yeah uh that's funny i want to talk about marvin so um what is the story with what seems like a bunch of college guys doing dirty business? You expect <laughs> Vincent and Jules to bust into this room and there'd be some, you know, heavy criminals, but you're wearing polo shirts and tucked in button-ups. Did Tarantino ever speak about that? What what it is you guys were up to exactly? And are you some kind of underworld, undercover, double agent? <laughs> what is happening? It's not entirely clear, and I love that. You know? Well, the, the backstory that we talked about, um, which – I talked about with Quentin, but I didn't really get to talk about with uh, Frank and Burr uh, and the rest of the – and Alexis. Um, but just the idea that we were, yeah, basically like Long Beach college kids who thought we were gangsters. Who had seen Reservoir Dogs. Right, right? exactly. <laughs> exactly. But didn't have any style sense to, to try to copy it. Um, you guys are so square. It's ridiculous. Is Burr the one that gets shot on the couch? Yes. So he's the only one that looks slightly alternative. That's Flacco Seagulls. Yes, yeah. that's right. <laughs> only so he can get called that. But the rest of you guys are like straight out of a Sears catalog. Right. And Alexis, who everybody says looks like uh, 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 Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah, he does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is so weird because he really doesn't now. Not anymore. No. He's, <laughs> he's now a woman. Correct? Yes. Yes. The idea to me was always that, yeah, we were this like Brett – Got a you know found out about this thing. It's like, dude, there's this this briefcase. We'll get so rich because he the guy you know this mob boss needs it. We'll just grab it. We won't come home because they'll know where you know in case they find out where we live. We'll just get an apartment. You know, let them know, and then they'll get the money. And you know, we thought it would be simple. Um, as far as me being the underworld, Marvin, the idea was that Jules knew somebody who knew somebody who knew Marvin, Uh you know, folks from the neighborhood, you know, and Marvin being dumb, probably mentioned it to a buddy. And so the word got around. And when Jules went looking to try to find out, he found out, oh, there's this kid. Okay. And got in touch with me and said, look, you in for a world of hurt. 
unless uh, you do exactly what I say. That makes sense. At yeah. seven forty-five, all you got to do is unlock the door, and I'll handle everything else. You know how Tarantino always talks about the crossover in his films. Mm-hmm. I would love. Love to see him do a film on Marvin and Brett and this whole like non heist that went down where you guys find it at a bus stop and just try to rent an apartment and then it just ends with God, all of you are just brutally. Everybody's murdered. dead. Oh my God. So let's talk about shooting that scene. How many days were you was that on a set or was that on location inside the apartment? The apartment was on a set in uh, Culver City. Um, how many days were we there? Probably Four days, three, four days. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, a real four-walled set. Um, I guess the walls were able to move. Yeah, no, no, they did move because we replaced one, and not, uh, and not well. Um, Are you talking about the bullet holes? The bullet holes. Yes. Okay. This is a lot of controversy online about how. We'll just get into this really quickly. So sure. Alexis Arquette comes out shooting. Mm-hmm. And he shoots at Jules and Vincent, and there are bullet holes behind their bodies where it would have seemed like it had gone through them. And when they turn around, they are not shot, but clearly something divine or totally coincidental happened. But the clip right before Alexis comes out, yes. you can see the bullet holes are already there in the background. Right. Is that on purpose and some kind of divine? No. Okay. That's what I figured. It was just a common mistake where in editing where people or, would, or I, just people wouldn't notice. I'm thought. sure I my feeling is, and I haven't talked to Quentin about it, um, but he's not dumb, and it's not like he didn't notice. Yeah, my feeling is that take was just so much better than the take with the clean wall that he said, "Fuck it." Mm-hmm. That sounds like something he would do in Scorsese too. Like when you watch that, you. Think I'm funny, Goodfellas scene. Their right. ties are all like they're untied and tied, mm-hmm. and he's just going for the right feel. Yeah, because the thing is, like, if if people are watching it enough and absorbed, you know, what's always what we say on set? Like, look, if they're looking at the fucking level of water in the glass, then we failed. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, and I would have never noticed this had it not have been pointed out by some. Um, really obsessive, sorrowful person online. <laughs> well, well, that's the thing. When you're watching the movie, you don't notice it. No, I never have, yeah. But once you have it at home and <laughs> I wonder, I wonder if continuity is more of a thing now in the age of the internet because every mistake will be caught. And that would be so easily fixed digitally now that they would probably do it There as you well. go, yeah. yeah. Um, so speaking of myth, this briefcase, that's another thing where it's, it seems very <laughs> clear that Tarantino... If he has any intention, it's for you to have fun with on your own. Like sort of art is in the eye of the beholder. You you say what's in there. But there are a million theories of what's in there, including, of course, like heroin and diamonds and things like that. But the big one is it's Marcellus Wallace's soul. soul. Mm-hmm. That's why he has a Band-Aid on the back yes. of his neck because the devil takes it out through the back of your neck and the mm-hmm. code is 666. And, you know, it goes a little crazy. You know, I, I – God, what year was that? Uh, I went back to uh, – do like a tea at my college. You went to Yale, right? Yeah. 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 I graduated in 88. Movie came out in 94. So this was probably... Wow, Yale boy makes good. I mean, you're coming back (laughs) six years later in the biggest independent film hit there is to date. That's got to feel good. And of course, on college campuses, people were... and, And some kid came up to me like... Not even at the the master's tier thing, but just like on campus. Like, is it true? And he lays out that whole like – because the Bible says it comes out through the head, which I've never heard. No, neither I've have I. Never, I've never ever only heard. heard it in relation to this. Right. Yeah. Um, and I was faced with a thing like, do I – actually, no. You know, at the time, I was a lot less um, audience uh, friendly uh-huh. than I am now. Like, I didn't realize that people cared and that people's myths are important to them. So I just said, no. <laughs> no, no. I, I the, think he may be doing him a service. The yeah. reason he's got a Band-Aid on the back of his head is because Ving Rhames shaves his own head. And he showed up at rehearsal with a Band-Aid on the back of his head and made Quentin go, ooh, you know, that would be interesting visually. Instead of just doing this as a, you know, over the shoulder too, like I was planning to, why don't I just not show your face? Because uh-huh. that's not in the script. <laughs> There's nothing that says Marcellus Wallace is not seen. Interesting. The, the Band-Aid is there because of Ving. 
And when and on, on set, I asked Quentin, "What's in the briefcase?" And he said, "It's whatever you want it." To so be. even that early, he knows what he's doing. But what literally was in the briefcase? A light. A light. Okay. Small light. <laughs> so ref- that's the uh, answer. Yellow light, reflective. Uh, yeah. Oh, a light is in a, the briefcase. A, a low watt. A low wattage uh, yellow bulb. I was thinking about for this episode. I often do a second little segment at the end about the myth of the briefcase, but it seems pretty clear. That it's A, whatever you want it to be, right. but B, it's a light. But the funny thing is, I just took that as the answer. I'm like, oh, okay. And then years later, I went, wait, that's not even a full answer. Uh, is it whatever I want it yeah. to be? What do you want it to be, Phil? Or does, or is it whatever whoever opens it wants it to be? I think or it, the does, latter. Is it the, is it the viewer? Oh. Is it like the audience? It's like it is whatever you want it to be. Or is the person who opens it seeing... I think it's both, you know. But see, there's a difference. If it's whatever, if John Travolta opens it up and sees whatever he wants to see, then it's a magical briefcase. Okay, yeah, I see what you mean. You know, if it is a concept, it is the most precious thing ever, um, then the, it is whatever the audience wants it to be. I didn't know we'd go this deep. You know? I'm loving it. And, but see, now here's my thing. I believe it is the latter, that it is whatever the audience wants it to be because – uh, Vincent is a functionary. Vincent is opening it to check. Uh-huh. Vincent has to be told what to check for. So he he wouldn't have his own notion of what it is because he already thinks it's something else. Or or maybe Marcellus like so. And yo, when you get the briefcase, <laughs> check make sure it's like. Well, what is it? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's what Marcellus told him. I, I want to know what you want it to be. What, what would you think it would be? Well, me as Marvin, I would think it would be not money because then we would just take it. Yeah. Although we, we couldn't open it. Um, I would think that it was for Marvin, he'd want it to be drugs or diamonds diamonds not drugs cuz drugs are bad yeah, but like diamonds and then we give them back to the guys and we get like 10 millions of dollars yeah i'm i'm down me phil what did i want it to be i want it to be um i guess phil wouldn't wouldn't care about the heroin <laughs> good to do let yeah. it be. well i remember my do. response in seeing that when he first opens the case and there's the yellow light i'm all i could think about was raiders of the lost ark when they look into the ark of the covenant and it's right. a swirling mass of clouds and that's i think what i expect it and want it to be you want it to be something holy yeah so right, yeah. That, for want, them anyway so you want a magical briefcase in the story in the movie i did i wanted some sort of not supernatural, but just heavy philosophical implications that right. goes along with this movie that's full of random acts of violence would right. be amazing. Because yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. the thing. If it is that, you can't take that out of the briefcase. No. <laughs> that is the, br- portal. The, the briefcase. Yeah. yeah. The briefcase is something unto itself. You know, And yeah, that's true. Because the, the guys, we would never have been able to see what was in the briefcase. Right. We just, yeah. we just heard on the street, there's this briefcase and Marcellus Wallace wants it. Yeah. That's the perfect MacGuffin. All right. uh, So we covered that. We solved it. We're going to take a break here and then come back and talk a little bit more about the scene and the other stuff. Phil Lamar, let's go back to that day. It's the first day shooting that scene in that apartment. You've got some pretty intense fire coming out of Samuel L. Jackson, <laughs> often like directly pointed at you. What was that like? I feel like I watched that scene and I think that that's fearsome. Yeah. No, I, I was literally actually afraid. I wondered about that because it, it feels like it. It's so good. Well, there there is – because we just sort of run through it, you know, camera block, whatever, and – uh, the the exchange that Sam and I have is he says, where's the briefcase? And I said, it's over there. It's like, I don't remember asking you a goddamn thing. <laughs> That's amazing. And then he goes back to to Frank in the chair. Um, but as we're rolling, we're doing the the master, um, he throws that line to me. You know, I don't remember asking you a goddamn thing. 
And then he keeps staring at me. He, he can, then he goes on. He's talking to Brett, but he's still staring at me. <laughs> and it's not how we rehearsed it. And I go completely out of character in my head. I'm like, what, what, why is Sam still looking at me? Like you've done something wrong. You right. I'm, I was like, yeah. do, is, is he mad at me? And I, I'm like, there is real fear coming up in my body. I'm like, why, what's, why, is he, why is he still he's supposed to He's supposed to turn to Frank. Why, why is he still looking at me? I mean, thankfully, I didn't have any lines to uh-huh. fuck up. Yeah. You know, but I was just like, I was actually afraid. And that, I mean, that scene was a masterclass in so many ways. It must have. Was it fun too? It feels like it must yeah. have been very fun. Yeah. Well, because it's like, it was hard work. Mm-hmm. It was like good hard work. You know, like, I don't, I mean, I don't work out, but I hear that when people work out, you got the, you got the wheel burn, you're like, yeah, you know, you get a, a, a lift from having pushed yourself so hard. It was like that. I can, you must've been exhausted too, right? Cause that's a lot of emotion going on. Well, it was so hot. And then the, you know, the, the blanks would go off, you know, I have some and questions so there's like about that as cordite well. in the, in the air. And, you know, it was technical, um, but it was also low budget. We were moving fairly fast. Um, and yeah, <laughs> The the best and worst thing was um, we're it's a lot of people in the scene. There's a lot of coverage. You know they've got to get you know shots of everybody. You know the camera close up on everybody. Um, and by the end of I think it was day two, um, we were I was in it. The fear was real. The every moment you know I believed where I was. Uh-huh. I was like sweating and in that, backed up in that corner. And then they said, and that's a wrap for tonight. Uh, f- back to first thing back tomorrow is close up on Phil. Oh. <laughs> Just like, no, really? We don't have like 10 more minutes. Seriously. Just one fucking shot right now would be so good for me. So how did you keep that for the next morning? Did you, well, that's the thing. Off? I'm like walking outside going, Fuck, I'm here. I'm right here. Do I try to stay here for the next uh, 10 hours? As some people would. But I just realized it was impossible. Yeah. I mean, I did not have the facility to fool myself that much for that long. Because then you're like, well, do I not sleep? Yeah, and do you have someone you had to go home to at that point, too, that would have to deal with that person? <laughs> or? Yes, exactly. Yeah, because I'm like, I can't stay here. I mean, I have to sleep because... If I try to stay in this agitated, fearful state for 10, 11 hours, I guess, no, it had to be 12 hours to turn around. I, I wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. I would be in a completely different state by tomorrow morning. I would be exhausted and tired. And the character's not supposed to be tired. It makes you wonder, too, and this is pure speculation of, you know, stories of someone like Heath Ledger that you hear tries to stay in at least the emotional awareness of the character and right. they, they have to rely on drugs or it gets so intense that they can't handle it. I'm not saying that that's what his case was, but you've heard stories about that. Right. And that seems like a well, surefire way to get yourself messed up. Well, and yeah, well, and it does, it really did sort of, I, th- I think it did gave me an insight into that, just what you're talking about, because yeah, there was a choice there. I could have done things to try to stay in that or an equivalent agitated emotional state until it was time to shoot. Like I could have gone to a bar and tried to get into a fight or, you know, like just like, or gone and, you know, watched, you know, Swedish snuff films for 10 hours. You know, if I had put (laughs) performance ahead of mental health, those are those are choices that came, that actually occurred to me. You know, I was like, okay, what can I do? And ultimately, for better or worse, I decided, you know what? The best thing for me to do is to go home, get rest, and then get up early and then try to get myself back to that state afresh. How'd it go? Eh. <laughs> I was not there. I was not I was not where I was. The night before, and because I couldn't be. I mean, we were. It was the culmination of you know eight hours 
of being in that room, hearing those lines, feeling the energy of the other people in that room. Yeah, you essentially had a full day rehearsal to get where you needed to yeah. be, only to have it knocked back to the... Yeah, just oh. pulled straight out from... It was oh, so... Man, I feel for you. Oh. But it doesn't come across. I mean, this this... I'm sort of curious as to what it would have been because what you do is so effective. Yeah, I mean, the scene still works. Um, but it is just, I mean, that's, that's always the, the demon to me of watching yourself in something is that you can't assess the scene like a viewer for what it is yeah. because it's a window into your experience of that moment in time. Uh-huh. And I can't see that scene without thinking about coming in that morning and fucking stressing about whether I was going to be able to get back to where I felt eight hours before. So oh, I, I cannot assess the scene, yeah. you know, it's yeah. like, I just have to listen to people and like, well, does it work? It's like, yeah, yeah. You look really scared. Like, all right. Oh my God. All right. Technical question. And I mean, literally technical mm-hmm. about squibs and blanks. Yes. I'm a bit obsessed. I've always wanted to be squibbed. <laughs> um, so Frank Whaley gets <clears throat> massively squibbed at some point. Yeah. You get your head blown off. Though we never see your actual body get blown I was off. not there. You say, ah, that's the question I have. Was it just a blood bomb they had sitting in the back seat? Do you know? What no. They, they – uh, well, uh, wait. Do I – I wonder if I have it on me. Um, talking about the dummy? Yeah. I have that picture of the dummy. I'll be posting me, it. Yeah, me from with your the website. dummy? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, where it's a profile shot? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So it – that's what we're talking about. That, here. yeah. Okay. Um, when we were – where were we? That must have been when we were shooting – the car stuff beforehand. Um, <clears throat> Greg Nicotero came by set with my bus that they had made because uh-huh. you know I did the whole like f- you know face cast thing. Yeah, that's a process I'd like to talk about as well. Oh man, how long did that take? It, I don't remember. I think it was it was well over an hour. Uh-huh. Must have been a couple hours. I don't remember because okay. I just remember sitting there being covered with some sort of lotion and then sitting while people basically sculpted on top of you. Just like, <laughs> you just feel them like you can't, you can't see, you know, I think, yeah. Cause, and I had to make a sort of pose as if I were being shot at the time. So I had my mouth slightly open and my head slightly back. Um, and the worst part was, when you have an open mouth for a, a, a head cast, yeah. they have to put it in your mouth. So they're just like lumfling this stuff into my mouth. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. and it's like, I it starts to it. go down. I couldn't do it. It's like, oh, oh, oh. okay, okay. Just just give us five more minutes. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> yeah, but it's thick enough that it doesn't actually go down your oh, throat and God, choke you. That sounds miserable. <laughs> It's like oh, like heavy viscosity waterboarding. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like can you still breathe? Uh huh. <laughs> um, so yes, they did the mouth and the head, and he built an exploding bust. So did they have one or a bunch or how did they? I think they had one. It was well, maybe they had more. I don't know. I only saw one, uh-huh. and it was rigged with like CO two or something, so that when you hit a button. And the, the back of the head was open, was cut open. Okay. And there was like basically sort of like a funnel or a cup in there, you know, with a tube that ran through it. And then you would go, <laughs> and they loaded the the cup or the the cone thing with bloody brain matter. Oh. And they brought on brought it on set to test the splatter. Uh-huh. And they sat the the head down there, put a giant uh, post white poster board behind, and then shot it. <laughs> and Quentin looked at it and goes. More chunks. <laughs> and said, all right, all right. All right. And well, he's not wrong. He's I not mean, wrong. They and, basically wallpapered the inside of and that And they car came back with more chunks, <laughs> uh, which was all shot before I uh, started work. Oh. All of the stuff with uh, Harvey Keitel and the cleaner, which bummed me out because I was hoping to get to play my own body and yeah. meet Harvey Keitel. So you – but it's not your body in the trunk when they do that brief shot, right? It which I always a, wondered why – not just use you for that, but I didn't realize that they made the dummy for the backseat thing. I thought they made it just well, no, for the truck. There's two. Oh. There, there's a bust, the the exploding bust oh. that like, and I think also it, the front of the lip blow was rigged to blow out, and as the head you know went for because that's the bullet going in and then the, uh-huh. the head splattering. Um, but they also built a full body dummy, 
which I believe, from my looking at it, had less damage done to the head than the bus did. Okay. But you never see the bus. Uh Um, And, of course, the dummy is also, like, a good six feet tall. Oh, really? The dummy was, like, much taller than me. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I mean, basically it was a budgetary thing. Like, if if I had played my own body it would have been a, a stop hold and they would have had to pay me more money. That's crazy that it's more expensive to put the real person in there than to build a dummy. That's nuts. I know, but that's the thing. You sort of think, well, how much did you actually spend? But then the dummy doesn't get residuals. That's true. Oh, good point. <laughs> so, what is it like to look at a dummy of yourself? Well, the funny thing is everybody else got to see the dummy. I, oh, you know. I never got to see the dummy. But the strange thing was my first day on set – it's my first day, but it's not the first time they've seen me. Uh-huh. People had spent a week That's right. looking at my lifeless. dead, decomposing, <laughs> lifeless body. And it was very odd. It was, you know how like when you have a name tag and people have a familiarity that you don't have? Yeah, yeah. People looked at me with recognition. Uh-huh. Hi, I'm Phil. It's like, hi. Yeah. And it, it took me, it wasn't until a little later that someone explained it to me. It's like... Look, we, we've all been looking at you dead, and it's a little weird for us to see you walking around. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> so I want to talk about some of your other work. In fact, your work on Mad TV, and just even in this interview today, your impressions are fantastic. And I want to know how you approach them, because I feel like I have this theory that there are two ways, and it's like you approach music. You either, when you're writing a song, you know a melody and you fit lyrics to it, or you have a lyrical idea that you have to write music to. Do you find you set out to impersonate someone and then figure out how to do it, or you kind of land on a voice and go, oh, that sort of sounds like them. Let me let me work my way to it. How does it happen for you? For me, it was the former. I mean, just because of the nature of, well, I'm trying well, to think. I bet, yeah, of Mad TV, you'd almost be assigned it or you're writing it Yeah, well, you know, I, but I did impressions before. Mad TV and at the Groundlings. Mm-hmm. Um, I I just like doing impressions. <laughs> Some of them are useful, like Michael Jackson and yeah. Prince. Some of them are not. All of my impressions are useless people like Crispin Glover or Julie Haggerty <laughs> or Zelda Rubinstein from The Poltergeist. See, know? that one's pretty useless. You could play Crispin Glover. I, I've been told that, sadly. You know, yeah. that, that yeah. could be useful <laughs> if, if Crispin people, knew who yeah, he was anymore. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, but yeah, there, there are always, I mean, like my Sidney Poitier is of very little use. Give me, give us a little. When a man, a small framed man like this man can change the world as we know it, then that man is no longer small. Oh my God. (laughs) It's like I'm in the room. (laughs) Um, You were there. I was. (laughs) You're but, very sorry. Go ahead. But, no, but on Mad, we we there were impressions that you did. They would look for things to do with them. You know, like Michael. Jack- I do a Michael Jackson. Let's find a sketch. And then there were other times where writers had concepts. You know, like I did. Um, we had a When Harry Met Sally parody. It was really just like it was called When Harry Met Willie, and in place of Meg Ryan, there was someone in a killer whale suit. And they needed somebody to do Billy Crystal. And we would shoot all of the film parodies all in a chunk. And they were out of white guys, <laughs> basically, is what happened. Dave Herman was already doing this, and Callan was doing something else. And like, well, none of the white guys are available to do Billy Crystal. Does it have anything to do with who does the best Billy Crystal? Well, at that point, nobody did uh-huh. Billy Crystal. And do... do- do they ever go like, all right, you three, give me your Billy Crystal? Or at this point, it was just they were out of white guys. I th- yeah. I mean, okay. so usually it's like, okay, who's got the closest physical resemblance? Like Brian Callen did our Terminator parody. Mm-hmm. And Brian doesn't really do impressions. And his voice is like two octaves higher than Arnold's. <laughs> but facially, he you – know, it's like makeup said, we can make him look like Arnold. Okay. And it's like, all right, we can f- he can fake the accent close enough. Uh-huh. Um, Usually, if there was an impression, it would go to Dave Herman because uh-huh. it's like, well, does Dave do that? He probably can, uh-huh. you know. Um, but yeah, this was one where it's just like, well, Dave can't do it, and Brian can't do it, <laughs> um, and Artie, Artie sounds like Artie all the time. Yeah. 
So they said, well, can you do Billy Crystal? And I'm like, um, I don't know. And I, you know, they gave us research tapes and I, and I looked at it and said, uh, yeah, yeah, I think uh, pretty much. That's amazing. How long does it take you to go away and come up with that? Like, it depends. If the, the farther away the voice is from my natural voice, the easier it is. Yeah, I could understand that. Um, because, and that's, I think, mostly a mental thing because whenever you hear your voice in the impression, it sounds wrong. Are you ever 10 minutes in to trying to find someone's voice and just go, nope, never going to happen? Martin Lawrence. Oh, well, actually, wow. I'm like 10 years into, like, <laughs> and I've just said, I can't do Martin Lawrence. Interesting. I don't know why. Huh. It seems like, you know, I can maybe do a word or two. Also, Sam Jackson. Your Sam Jackson was pretty good in here. I can only do Sam yelling. That's all he ever does. <laughs> <laughs> right. I can, and, and there's also, there's comedy impressions, Dana Carvey, and then there's, you know, yeah. fool you impressions. Right. I tend towards fool you impressions, and a lot of times that make, that means they're not funny. Oh, but I, I so appreciate those more. And, and they're subtly much more funny because of the nuances that you can catch. Uh, yeah. I see. I, uh, th- that's what my preference. But you, then I realized later that you have to also find a take. Huh. You know, it yeah. can't just be the impression, <laughs> you know. Well, let's talk about your first job, if I have this right. Um, it was doing a voice for the Mr. T cartoon. Oh, dear God. And you were in high school. Yes. How did you get that? Uh, a friend of my mother's worked for NBC. And, you know, I think she had come to see me in a play at high school, you know, because like you go to see your, yeah. you know, friends, kids, and she said, "Well, we're doing this cartoon and we're using real kids. Do you want to audition?" And I'm like, "All right, sure." And yeah, it wound up being my summer job for three years. That's amazing. This is in the days when everybody who had any kind of TV time was then given a Saturday morning, yeah, TV I mean, show. and if you watch the show, you can tell that this is a total marketing-driven decision. Yeah, it's like, all right, well, we got the cereal. We got action figures, got the primetime show. Uh, he's got some movies in the pipeline. Uh, what's left? Uh, do, do we do a cartoon? Oh, right. Call the people that did Bobby's World. <laughs> and uh, just have them throw together a cartoon. Because it's like, well, are you famous? Yes. Uh, do you do dirty things? No. All right, then you should have a cartoon. And even if you do, <laughs> there's some wiggle room there. No, not back then. No? Wait, not wh- back what then. didn't uh, – Pee Wee Herman. Thinking? Yeah, but but he hadn't done anything weird at that no, point. No, but I'm saying if you if you remember there was there was the family hour. Like the lines between what was considered adult friendly, I mean a kid friendly and not was really more stark. What than am it is I thinking now. of that was such an adult property that they then turned into a cartoon that surprised me and now I cannot think of it. Which one? Ghostbusters? No. No. Ah. Uh. I feel like there was a rated R movie that they then turned into a. I could be wrong. But oh, I wonder. If I think of it, I'll, I'll Porky's? tag it on. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine the Porky Saturday morning cartoon? <laughs> Behind the green door. <laughs> um, what are you working on these days? Uh, doing a lot of uh, animation stuff, um, doing uh, comic book convention appearances, which is ah. a, a weird new world. Um, Primarily for like your work on Futurama or. St- you play Kit Fisto and Bail Organa in, in two the, different Star Wars properties, right? I'm a big Star Wars fan. Oh, so, yes. Yeah. Yes, I was Kit Fisto in Star Wars The Clone Wars. Oh my God. And I uh, took over for Jimmy Smits as the voice of Bail Organa in both Star Wars The Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels. You give him a lot more, I don't know, there's a better regal sense to <laughs> yours. Cause. Well, I mean, it's, it's harder, I think, for on-camera actors to you know switch into voiceover mode because all the stuff they're doing with their face, they have to now like funnel through their mouth Mm -hmm. and it's a different skill set. Do you prefer being in the room in an animation recording with the entire cast or would you rather just kind of, it's a job, let me go in and knock it out and get out of there? How does it work for you? No, I I always prefer to be with the group. Mm -hmm. Um, It's funny because somebody just sent me a link today to a scene from the Justice League cartoon. And it's a scene that Maria Canals and I did where Green Lantern, John Stewart, and Shaira Hawkgirl kiss for the first time. Mm. And it's so funny because I remember doing the scene, but I watched it again. I'm like, wow, this is like a three-minute scene, you know, a relationship scene in a Saturday morning cartoon. And were you guys in the room together? For oh, that? yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We had to be. I mean, like when you when you listen to it, I can't imagine it being anywhere near as good if it was just cut and paste. And how do you kiss when you're both at separate mics? Like, at what point do you go, 
Mm. <laughs> I mean, it never probably got to that, right? There probably weren't any kissing sound effects, but well, I think actually we did do a, a slight kiss, and it's sort of that they go back and pick up. Uh-huh. Okay, we well, we have to do, pick you guys up separately. Just you know, do a kiss sound, and we'll cut it together. Dry, go from dry to wet, right? Mm. Three, <laughs> you know, it's like not too. Don't don't enjoy it too much. <laughs> it's a kids' cartoon. Uh. But. So, Phil, where can people find you? On Twitter, at Phil Lamar? Right? Uh, yes, at Phil Lamar. Um, L-A-M-A-R-R. Uh, yeah, P-H-I-L-L-A-M-A-R-R. Two L's in the middle, two R's in the end. And, uh, yeah, and we're also doing um, this improv show, the black version. Um, we were doing it twice a month at the Groundlings, uh, but now we're doing it uh, once a month, Saturdays at Largo. Oh, no kidding. And, uh, yeah, it's so much fun. That's a great um, theater. And uh, the same group of folks that we uh, – that I do the black version with, we've also shot a pilot for TV one that, uh, we're hoping, uh, will turn into something. That's great. And we'll see. Thank you so much for coming in and, uh, talking and almost dying. Are you okay? Yes. Sorry. Had to, I that mic thing where you yeah. get used to talking to Mike and you start to hear the, the, rasp, the rasp coming in. I'm like, just let it go. Just let it go. <laughs> no one cares. No one cares that you're not at your smoothest. Ooh, what a way to go out. Thank you, Phil. Thanks, man. My gratitude to Phil Lamar for sitting down with me. That was a really fun interview. Thank you to Bob Fingerman and uh, my good buddy Steve Agee for connecting us. Also, the cartoon that I was thinking of that they did make out of an R-rated film franchise was Rambo. I don't know if it was on Saturday mornings, but I definitely remember it on afternoons after school. And uh, that's a pretty bloody film franchise to turn into... uh, Look, I'm not here to moralize. I watched it. Hell, I'll probably put a YouTube clip of it on this episode's webpage if you just visit it. And uh, now it's time for an old familiar segment. An oldie but a goodbye. What? An oldie but a goodie. Familiar face. An old friend. A big time segment. And you know it as... Hello and welcome to another exciting installment of I Wasn't There Too. It's been a while. All right, let's break this down because there's a lot for this film. In the role of Vincent Vega, as played by John Travolta, apparently Daniel Day-Lewis wanted the role but was turned down in favor of Travolta by Tarantino himself. James Gandolfini was also considered. All of this, of course, to be taken with a grain of salt. I'll cite sources when I can, but otherwise assume that they're by, well, the internet. So... Literally none of this is true. Reservoir Dogs badass Michael Madsen was evidently the first choice for Vincent Vega, but he opted out to play Virgil Earp in Kevin Costner's Wyatt Earp film. Also, according to Ronnie Yeskel, the film's casting director, quote, Hollywood agencies were pitching Robert Redford, Dustin Hoffman, and Bruce Willis, just the biggest names in the business that you can imagine, and we're sitting there in these rooms with all these suits and they all look alike and we're all kids in a candy store. We couldn't believe they were pitching these people to us, end quote. Harvey Weinstein himself fought the director's choice for Travolta, liking the option for Daniel Day-Lewis, suggesting Sean Penn and William Hurt for the part of Vincent Vega. And according to Vanity Fair and Tarantino himself, Bruce Willis originally wanted the role of Vega as well, but the role went to Travolta. Then Willis set his sights on Butch, the boxer. But as the story goes, Tarantino had promised that role to Matt Dillon previously, but Dillon hesitated And that was enough for Tarantino to throw it Willis's way. Plus, Willis was a huge star at the time, and in Tarantino's own words, made Pulp Fiction legit. For Mia, played by Uma Thurman, Michelle Pfeiffer, Daryl Hannah, Meg Ryan, Joan Cusack, and Isabella Rossellini were apparently considered. Rosanna Arquette also auditioned for Mia, but was offered Jody instead. Julia Louis-Dreyfus apparently passed on Mia because of Seinfeld. Alfre Woodard, Halle Berry, and Annabella Sciorra auditioned for the role of Mia as well. For the role of Butch, as played by Bruce Willis, besides Matt Dillon, apparently Sylvester Stallone and Mickey Rourke were also briefly considered. Here's where things start to get a little interesting. For the roles of Lance and Jody, as played by Eric Stoltz and Rebecca De Mornay, Courtney Love claimed that Quentin Tarantino originally wanted Kurt Cobain and her to play Lance and Jody. However, Tarantino denies ever having even met Kurt, much less offering him a part. That sounds like... Lies all around, from Courtney Love, from the internet reporting that. There's so much speculation in there, it's got to be true. 
Also, apparently, several executives at TriStar wanted Gary Oldman for the role of Lance based on his portrayal of a similar character in True Romance, which was written by Quentin Tarantino. And then Ellen DeGeneres apparently tried out for the role of Jody. And for the role of Marcellus Wallace, as played by Ving Rhames, Tarantino wanted Max Julian, but he turned down the role, objecting to the rape scene. All of this from Samuel L. Jackson, who told Mark Seal in Vanity Fair, Max Julian wasn't going to do that. He's the Mac. He's Goldie. He's like, no, I don't think my fans want to see that. That's my Samuel Earl Jackson impression, if his middle name was Earl and not L. Also, the film has cameos by Steve Buscemi as the Buddy Holly waiter. And also, comedian Kathy Griffin appears in a quick cameo in the scene where Marcellus Wallace and Butch get into a car accident. Apparently, Tarantino and Kathy Griffin used to date. And you know how that goes. Oh, boy. Well... This one was mostly just me reading things. Okay. Well, that's it for this episode. You can reach me at Iwasthere2pod at gmail.com. That's the best way if you know somebody that you can connect me to for this podcast to make it happen. I'm also alive and well on Twitter and Instagram, at Matt Gorley. Also, if you like this podcast, please give it a positive review on iTunes or any place that podcast reviews are allowed. I don't know of a single other one. But if you don't like the show, why are you even listening at this point? That's on you. Don't take it out on a bad review. Take it out on yourself for not liking it and getting this deep into an episode. You're a sadist. Well, maybe you listen to it because you're a sadist, which means you really kind of like it. In which case, five stars, please. Thank you. Good night. Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear. 